Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. This is Tommy and I'm with my dear friend and co-host Becca. How's it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> I mean, girl, we, we'll get into that later, but <laughs> <laughs> the real reason we are here, we have a dear friend of mine um, who I am so excited to talk to and we have been plotting and co-conspiring together um, and I, I'm just excited for the moments of head, uh, ahead. We have Aaron Law with us. Um, Aaron mm-hmm. is uh, steeped in the lineage of somatic dance and movement training. She's a licensed physical therapist based in Nashville, Tennessee. She does body work, creative arts, uh, and social justice. She's coach she is an embodiment curator at activist theology project with dr robinson henderson espinoza um and they facilitate work at the intersections of politicized healing somatics emergence and liberation and that was a whole lot that i'm just kind of like unpack that for us (laughs) (laughs) welcome welcome here Y'all, I feel so excited to be here with you and so honored that you would have me on to this really special, special podcast. I've listened to a few episodes and it's just, it's such moving work and such open space and uh, we need more of that. And so I'm just really, really grateful that I get to be like a part of this fabric that you're weaving. Aww. So yeah. Really fun weaving it. So it's, yeah, it's, weaving it. <laughs> I feel sometimes I feel like some especially this season, the people that we've talked to, there's so much privilege in in just sitting and being able to listen to mm. a person's story. Mm. And the people specifically that we've talked to this season have all grown me in in immeasurable ways that I will never be able to thank them enough or repay them Mm. back and so this you know it's easy to do these things for whatever reason but I can truly say that this is humbling work for me that encourages me to show up in the world in different ways and I'm just Mm -hmm. so happy to be a part of it yeah yeah friends as you're listening to the podcast and we're listening to amazing people like Aaron Tommy and myself are also taking notes. (laughs) Like we are learning leaps and bounds. Like I just, Mm. every time I go and edit a podcast, I am again, just blessed with hearing the conversation. Mm. So all that to say, and we are so excited to have you. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. So you asked me to unpack. I will just say a couple little little shifts in in my introduction that you read. It is a lot. There's a lot going on. I 
I have had a lot of twists and turns in terms of what I do in the world. And so one thing I'll just say is I'm, I'm not a physical therapist, but I am a massage therapist. I'm a licensed massage therapist. Um, I totally messed that up. I, you know what? It's all good. <laughs> I think it would be so cool if I was a physical therapist. Uh, that's a lot more school than I yeah. had time for. You know, my, my, our roommate is an actual, she has her doctorate in physical therapy. So yeah. we'll just have to have her own in, in replacement. Exactly. Of, of there you that. go. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Ariana, I, we're coming for you. Okay, great. Yes. Ariana, it's your turn to talk about that. Cause I, I kind of know a little bit, but not, not enough. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I also, I, I would say I, more than anything, I relate with the, the word facilitator. So sure I could be a coach, but I think facilitator is the, the thing I, I prefer because to me that kind of implies this sense of like midwifing something. Like mm. I get to witness you doing your thing and I get to maybe create space and hold space for that. But really it's always going to be pointing back to you and your experience and it's interesting, like people will ask me, well, do you identify as a healer? And I think, I think for myself, I am a healer. I heal myself. I have that capacity. And also I think healing is something that is facilitated. And so mm. I think that's kind of the thread that goes through most of my work is facilitating healing in some capacity. So I'm curious what that means to you, that healing mm. is facilitated. Mm. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to me? Mm -hmm. Like how, how, what is in your mind, how does that translate? Yeah. So I think that our, like, for instance, our cells, like they know what, what's up. Like they know what to do. They, mm. they know how to like go after what's needed to be okay. Um, mm. and to, to like create what's called homeostasis, which is like, you know, just getting back Great. to quote unquote normal. Language <laughs> well, I can't go too deep into the medical language, but <laughs> well, we, we create, so where you lack, I'll pick up girl. <laughs> Great. Great. I'm gonna let you take off in a minute. But yeah, I think, um, I think that because we have that capacity at a cellular level and we're made of like 50 trillion cells or some crazy number like that, um, that we do have the capacity to heal our consciousness and to heal wounds in our psyches and in, in our hearts. And, um, and so I don't, I would never take responsibility for the healing that you Becca or you Tommy have mm. done because that's literally yourselves and your psyche and your emotional work, but I can be a witness to that, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So that yeah. is what, that's what it means to me mm. more or less to facilitate. Some people like there's so much to even get to that point where yeah. your cells and your, so would you also consider facilitating leading people? It's also, it's not, what am I trying to say? Like you're the person who walks them up to the bridge Mm -hmm. and says you can walk across mm -hmm. does that make sense mm. or you have the ability to walk across or you know like I'm just yes. trying to I <laughs> it's been really interesting okay this is gonna be a little 
a little a little aside, but I yeah. I just recently completed this six week course online with one of the most amazing facilitators I have ever gotten to work with. And it's crazy because like I didn't even get to meet them in person. Their name is Sage Hayes. Incredible work. Their their whole basically the name of their business is called Embodied Liberation. I mean, feel into that. Embodied yeah. liberation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, and through this six week course, it was for, it was designed for healers, um, of all walks. So therapists, you know, psychotherapists, energy Mm -hmm. workers, body workers, a lot of the folks in there were, uh, our practitioners of something called somatic experiencing, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, but there just was something, um, about the openness and the sage's ability to follow the flow of the group and not impose sort of an agenda on us, even as the leader that helped us, I think all at least get closer to what it is we're trying to do. And in that process, what I learned is there are certain people who I can work with and there are certain people who I actually don't think I can work with. And so the people that I could work with, I guess to go with your metaphor, would be already standing at the edge of the bridge. Um, they'd be standing there and maybe they're they're like, I know that I have to cross this bridge. Like, I, I know I'm going to cross this bridge. Yeah. And so for me, I would come alongside them and say, Let's walk over this bridge together. I can't work with folks who are not willing to go to the bridge because they're not ready. And that's been a really hard thing for me, actually, as uh, I mean, just as someone who facilitates healing to accept. Uh, I, you know, I used to do a lot of body work, a lot of massage therapy, and I would have clients all the time who would come in and just say, you know, basically they'd see their bodies as machines that can be fixed and expect me to, you know, turn a screwdriver and (laughs) wield a drill and, and, and maybe hammer some things and that they would be better. And in fact, uh, you know, I could only do so much if they were not willing to look at the bridge, if that makes sense. So it's been really beautiful to go through this six week course because it's helped me to really crystallize that I really can only work with the people who are, and maybe they're just right at the beginning, but who are willing to go there. And um, because they know that, oh, I have a, a sense that there's something really scary but also really amazing ahead mm. like i said there's so many places we can go and so many questions there's so that many ask you. So for context, I've yeah. met Aaron in person, y'all. Um, we, uh, I get to do some work with this organization uh, that that brings faith communities together nationwide uh, called With Collective. 
and Aaron and I met last November, we both had a part in bringing that event to life. And I was so moved by the experience and by your work. And I remember, I think we looked at each other and we were like, we have to work together. We have to do something together. We have yes. to get to like, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then as I'm, you know, continuing to do my work at that time, I was just coming, getting really involved with the podcast and awakening to all these things in myself. And uh, the conversation on anti-racism is mm-hmm. is really at the forefront of, um, I think it's always at the forefront of people of color's minds, but really mm-hmm. uh, white people are now talking about anti-racism in, mm-hmm. in, in a way that feels different. Yeah. And so you being a person deemed white mm-hmm. and in this space of healing and in the space of coaching, which I think can sometimes have this background that really alienates people of color. Yes. Uh, Especially black people. Yes. Especially when they see a white person leading or facilitating, and then also talking about healing. Um, but knowing the work that Active Theology Project does, knowing the work that you do in being caring deeply about social justice, mm-hmm. could you speak into that a little bit more as it relates to these notions of somatics, of embodiment, from yeah. your perspective as a person deemed white? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. There's a lot there. So I think I want to start with just that term anti-racist, because I've been in a lot of conversations, especially lately, you know, not to, I hope it's okay to like name the time, but like tomorrow is Juneteenth. (laughs) And so regardless of the insanity of what is happening in our country, like we would be celebrating Juneteenth tomorrow, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something about this term that for some white folks is really troubling and or they feel cannot be accessed. And so I'm I'm sitting, I guess what I'm saying is I'm sitting with this question of like, can white people really ever be anti-racist? It's a question I'm holding. I don't know. Can we ever be allies? Or is it that, because the way I experience myself is by claiming that I am at least influenced by or in the stream of anti-racist behavior, thought, ways of being, I am also naming that doesn't mean that I am not racist or that I can't hold racist beliefs and Mm -hmm. therefore then perpetuate racist actions. Um, So I guess I just want to name that first, because I think as somebody who is white doing this work, we have to talk about that and we have to Mm -hmm. be honest about that. I I guess I wanted to name that first. I think as far as (laughs) embodiment and somatics goes, somatics as a field has been whitewashed 
And I would encourage everyone who's listening to this to go back and listen to the two beautiful episodes with Tina Strawn on this podcast that were done in March. And uh, she just does such a beautiful job of highlighting how so many somatic practices, which many of them are coming out of Eastern Asian traditions have been appropriated and then whitewashed and then situated inside of a sort of capitalist machine where it's about, I'm going to make money off of your pain and I'm going to look good doing it because I'm white and I have power. And that has never been okay for me. I, this has been a thing that I have been sitting with actually really since I can remember, like since I was in college and studying dance. So I wanted to preface all of that to say also that by engaging in embodiment and somatic practices, which maybe it's worth defining sort of what that is in a moment, but, but essentially like getting into the body by getting into my body and all of the sensations that are there, all of the feelings that I'm holding in the body, the tension that's there, um, noticing those types of patterns that emerge for me by doing that, I am actively unhinging from supremacy culture because supremacy culture would have me ignore the sensations of the body would have me repress my feelings so that I can go on like this ruthless machine and keep perpetuating the same bullshit. Um, And so I think that it's important to name all of those things. And I am privileged to do this work. I am. I am. Absolutely. I am situated in a social position where I have, I am white, I appear cis, I'm still struggling with that. I don't think I'm not a woman, but I don't see my femininity as something that's static. And so it's, that's why I use sometimes the pronoun they or she. And would you talk a little bit about femininity and static? Like, what does that mean? Sure, sure. So I guess what I mean is that I don't see my femininity as situated inside of a binary like gotcha. that I am the opposite of male and to give <laughs> to give a fun example like in my relationship I often will say like you know my partner's like <laughs> they'll be like I I can't figure this thing out and I'll go oh well do you need your femme butch boy to come figure it out <laughs> Because I know that I appear, (laughs) I know that I appear very femme. And also like I have, I have the ability to think 3D spatial and because of all my kinesthetic training, like I'm strong and I can, I can do things with my body that are very detailed and require concentration and focus or strength or whatever it is. And so um, I think that there's this really beautiful sort of fluidity, even just inside femininity. And honestly, uh, I used to have a shaved head and I would get called sir or, you know, be misgendered. And and I would be like, fine with that, because I just don't experience 
myself as this like static thing. So I, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay. Now I have no idea what I was talking about before. <laughs> I appear cisgendered, and therefore, I think in most people's eyes, I appear straight, which could not be further from the truth, but that's how I appear, and that can be how I'm received. And obviously, I'm white, and I have had access to a lot of education, and while I'm certainly not affluent, <laughs> like struggling, I I do have access through you know, resources that maybe aren't always financial, but like I have access to these things. So I would name that and then intersecting with that or like making a Venn diagram with that is my experience of being queer. And I, I experienced that both in terms of my gender and in terms of my sexuality. And queerness for me is a lot more than gender and sexuality. It is a way of life. It is a way of engaging with the world. And to me, it is, it is the meaning that we, or not even the meaning, it is the way that we learn to do things on the outside of the margins. It is the way that we learn there are more possibilities than the mainstream that's coming at us all the time, because that normative thing doesn't work for us. And so we have to figure out other ways of being, and we have to find ways that are life-giving to, to live in the world. So I think that those things intersecting are what barely allow me to be able to do this work with some rootedness in at least understanding what it's like to f at least feel how it feels to be on the margins of something. I cannot claim at all that I know what it feels like to walk in the world with black skin. Like I just can't. And also from an inner sort of inner landscape, a felt sense, I can at least understand what it feels like to be othered. And so I think that that positionality, if you will, gives me a particular inroad into this work of, of working with somatics, social healing, the body, and allows me also to speak to people who look like me, who are white, who, who do have privilege, who may see themselves in me and say, Hey, let me model something else for you. Like what if you were to look at things this way or do things this way? So I don't know if that at all answers your question. <laughs> But it's a, like, and I feel like it's actually only the tip of the iceberg because you did ask about healing. And I do think I want to talk about that, but I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first, what I will say to that is, I mean, in, in so many different areas, as you were speaking through that, things were pinging within me. I think the biggest thing that pinged in me was when you talked about supremacy culture, white supremacy culture is to ignore um, to repress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about the conversation we had a few weeks ago with Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes in the myth or this image of the strong black woman. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And 
when I think about the time that we are in with COVID, with really the world having a reckoning with white supremacy mm-hmm. and black women leading the charge in this. And as we talk about healing and this self, the, this notion of self-care, one self-care has, has also been this thing that has been co-opted into whiteness. Oh, Lord. Yeah. We need to talk about that. Right. And, and, <laughs> and so it opens the doorway for me for hope um, and to begin to think about, because it's really, it's real for me, I'll be vulnerable here. It's really mm-hmm. easy to be heady and to yes. talk about anti-racism from a very heady perspective. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And to begin to distance myself from the experience of it. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, I then begin to take myself out of my body. Yes. Out of mm-hmm. the body experience of, of that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing that draws me to your work as I think about this is you have the understanding, but it's also you're, you are very clear on your lane. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not trying to speak into black people's pain per se, right. but at the same time, I see it as this is something that is so precious, that is so helpful, that mm-hmm. is so transformative Um in terms of being, in terms of yes. getting from under this yoke, this of, of oppression of yeah. white supremacy, yeah. um, but especially for Black women mm-hmm. who, in my experience, have to put so many things ahead of themselves, ahead of their feelings, ahead of their emotions. Mm-hmm. And one of my desires is to be able to speak into a space that says, no, this isn't a privilege. This is necessary for your survival. Yes. Thank you. Oh my gosh. So much there. Let's, let's talk about all of that. So I think that, I mean, at first, I guess I want to name that a big part of my ability to even remotely try to understand black experience is that I have partnered with an incredible black woman for many years. Uh, We're no longer together, but I will say there are many times in our relationship where I learned how painfully, how my own inheritance of white supremacy was harmful for her directly. And also on the flip side of that, I got to witness trauma and microaggressions and shit that makes me so angry still. Like I feel angry just thinking about the things Mm. that I witness, uh, her experience. And so I think that that's important to name. And then as far as what you're talking about, man, with white supremacy, basically it needs us to ignore that we have bodies and that we have feelings, right. To, Mm -hmm. to, in order to be as insidious as it is. And so I think there's something around that willingness to go in inward and, and look at 
what's actually there, that that's probably the thing. One of the things that's scaring the shit out of so many white people right now is that they don't have the tools to feel or, or don't have the safe space, quote unquote, safe space to feel and to, to be in their bodies. And and in fact, Mm -hmm. like it is definitely sort of a pillar of white supremacy to, to be a talking head and to, for it to be all about ideas. And as you were talking, one of the things that really struck me, there's an article that maybe we can post in the, in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I cannot remember the author's name. He wrote for the Washington post and he talks about when black people are in pain, the, the, the title of it is when black people are in pain, white people join book clubs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. And it's true. And I think, you know, for me, sure. Yeah, it was important for me like last year I read White Fragility and I was like, wow, this is so big because it's giving me language for something that I'm told to not have language for. Okay, big shout out for that. Amazing. It helped me look inward, right? It was the beginning of something and it doesn't matter. Like ultimately it doesn't matter. Your your ideas are only as good as your ability to enact them. And if if there continues to be this separation uh, between the, this really fake separation between our minds and our bodies, like we are one being, like we are one being. All of it is existing together at the same time. If there continues to be that, then we can't make progress. And so... I think that, you know, you were talking about me staying in my lane. I think my lane is to work generally with folks who are situated in the dominant culture to to help them begin <laughs> to get, like, realize, oh, my God, I have skin. Oh. A.K.A. white people. <laughs> yeah, white, 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 white skin. White skin. Oh, my God, I have white skin. Oh, my God, I have... I have muscles. Oh, I have bones. Oh my God, I have organs. Like, oh, I can smell things and see things. And oh, maybe that has value. Like maybe that actually has value. And what if I were to lean into that? And I can say, you know, from my own perspective, like through this practice that that I have been cultivating for myself, even um, as I, I facilitate my own healing, the more I lean in to a somatic practice, the more I realize like all of these supremacist layers that have been put onto me, like a suit of armor, that I'm like, I don't want this shit anymore. Take it off of me. No. And like, even right now, maybe this is TMI, but I'm not wearing a bra. Like, I can't do that shit anymore. I can't breathe, like, with that thing constricting me. Free the boobs! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Free the boobs, but also, like, what's underneath that is your diaphragm. 
ham. Yes. Like, this thing is dying. It's just totally constricted. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Like sometimes, okay, sometimes I'm doing it because I need I need them to stay in place, right? Need little boots, like, right? Yeah, I need them to not like, and especially as a dancer, like sometimes I have a thing about that where I'm like, no, I need to feel like contained. That's one thing. But for you to feel comfortable, no, that's not a thing. I'm not into that anymore. I am not into that. Amen. If you can't look at me and respect me, like without that, like then what the fuck, you know? So I think there's something that that helps me go, okay, well, that's where I, as, as someone who has boobs <laughs> and who may be objectified for that, at least that helps me go, okay, that is one place where I actually feel oppressed and I refuse to be oppressed by that anymore. And literally by engaging in a somatic practice, what that does is it helps me understand my sensations. It helps me understand when I'm activated, when I don't feel right, when something is wrong and I I listen to my gut instead of ignoring it. It also helps me understand what is pleasurable and what I like and what is joyful and what brings me to a sort of, as they say in all sorts of different somatic practices to a regulated place. How can I regulate myself? Well, let me tell you what, it's not by reading a book. It's not. It's by it's by literally like rolling around on the floor. It literally sometimes just giving myself some like compression touch or I'm doing this so you all can see what I'm doing, but I know your listeners can't see, but I'm sort of pressing my hand along my arm and along my chest and along my face and like just feeling that I actually have a body and dropping into what is in there. And so I think when we do that, you know, a lot can open up for us. All that made me cry because literally right before we got on, Mm -hmm. I was putting my five-year-old to bed who currently identifies as she. Mm -hmm. And I normally put her to bed in my pajamas and I don't have a bra on. Mm -hmm. I had a bra on. I had pajamas on the bottom and a t-shirt on top and I have a bra on. And she noticed that tonight. Mm. She's like, why are you doing that? (gasps) Wow. And so... My answer was not for me. Hmm. So like I have chills that you just said that. Wow. That's that's exactly right. It's not for you. It's not for you. It's for something completely other. And even like showing up to this, you know, Zoom call, like you might feel like you have to look a certain way and well COVID COVID got the makeup off. <laughs> I stopped putting makeup on for interviews. I hear that. <laughs> I hear that. But I think that there's something really important to listen to in that. And the more we listen to that, the more we see that this, these sort of, I guess, fallacies of white supremacy are exactly that. They're lies. They're complete lies. Like, why, why would you do that? Why would you wear a bra for, for anyone but you? Why? Well, I mean, TMI. I mean, I just told her, I was like, well, sometimes your nipples get cold and then they're like, poke you through. And it makes me sad that that is the expectation in culture at the moment. 
in like I, I know I said it jokingly, but I'm very serious. Like Oh, I know you are. Oh. <laughs> like there I the free the boot movement, it, it like I hope there's a resurgence of it because it is oppressive to that, you know, unless it's something voluntary that you want to do that makes you comfortable and I get that. But that to me, um, especially being a person that actively fights against systems and ideologies. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems incredibly oppressive. And if I'm going to be truly anti-racist, um, and anti-sexist, then like, I have to be looking at all these ways in which they're oppressing people because the societal position is that this is what you need to be, look like to, to be professional, to not be a distraction and all the other things that we tell women. (laughs) Right. It's the, um, something like the politics of appropriateness or like appropriate attire, appropriateness, respectability, all of Yeah, that's it. Respectability. Thank you. It's the politics of respectability. And why, why do I have to appear a certain way for you to respect me? You know, and likewise, Mm. you know, why do you as a black man have to appear a certain way for me to respect you? Like there were those studies that were done. I don't remember when that are just showing like black people with dreadlocks are less likely to be hired in an interview because of the politics of respectability. And I, I remember in high school, people having conversations school counselors having conversations with kids that had dreadlocks or some sort of attire saying, you'll never get a job with that. Uh-uh. <laughs> and actually, can we go off on a tangent about yeah, black hair yeah. for a moment? Yeah. So one of the stories that I think is, is central to my own ability to identify where white supremacy has lived in, in my body and in my actions is centers around my ex-wife's hair. And it's, it's really interesting to see sort of how this story then opens up and, and morphs. So there was a time early in our relationship where uh, she would straighten her hair and she would put chemicals and like perm, you know, she would do the perm and, um, and she often got, uh, that she looked like Halle Berry, you know, with that sort of like wispy look, mm-hmm. like a short wispy look. And she was the appropriate black woman look. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you know, what matters most is that she was happy with it mm-hmm. and that she, uh, was, participating in black culture in, you know, whatever way she felt like she wanted to. And me coming from talk about this like industry, and I will call it an industry of wellness and like what is right for the body and wrong for the body. Well, me, my granola white ass was like, Hey, I think that, um, you know, maybe, Oh, here's a, here's a detail. We moved up North so I could go to grad school and up there, you know, her, her hair started to get dry. Her scalp got dry. You know, I was like putting coconut oil on it, like to try to moisturize. Like it was, it was hard for her to adjust to that temperature. And I was like, well, what if you just went natural with your hair? And I think she had been considering that too. 
And so she decided, okay, like I'm going to stop like perming my hair and like go natural. And like her hair is absolutely beautiful. And either way, and especially when she uh, let it go natural. Okay. So fast forward down the road, I think someone was complimenting her or no, she said, um, I really appreciate like my hair now. And like, I'm so happy, like it's so healthy. And you know what? I tried to take credit for getting her to do that. And like, that was a moment where obviously that wasn't well-received. She's like, uh, no. And it, it helped me go, Oh my God. Like I just tried to take credit for like helping her be well when like, really I have no place making any type of comment about her hair, whether we're married or not. Like, even though we were married, like, that's just not something that you do. And I did. And I learned from that moment, like people are looking at her, especially white people and often like exoticizing her or going like, wow, your hair. And like, then we would go down the street. I'm telling you at least once a week, someone, usually a white person, almost always a white person would go, oh my gosh, your hair, can I touch it? Before getting her consent would have their hand in her hair. And she was so gracious and she would just like deal with it and sort of laugh it off. And laughing is a way to express emotion when you don't know what else to do. I mean, that is a trauma response in a way. Mm. And I would just be fuming because I understood what what a trespass that was, let alone my own, like, you know, jealousy as like a partner. But I was like, how dare you? Like, who do you think you are? And, and it's just such an interesting example. And maybe it seems like benign, but it, it to me, it, it really demonstrates um, something, you know, culturally where like, I really fucked up, but then I also saw how other people treated her. I think for a lot of white people, there and and my my hope is that we'll have uh, another black woman on and to really dig into this conversation a little bit more. Hair to black women, I'm not going to even sit here and say that I begin to explain it, but right. there is a there is an element of liberation. There is an element of freedom mm-hmm. attached to it. And um, if you want more conversation surrounding this, I highly recommend that uh, people go and listen to uh, Dr. Lisa Sharon Hopper's and Jen Hatmaker's conversation on mm. white women. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it on Facebook. And they get into this topic a little bit. But hair for black women, it, 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 it's, it's sacred. It's sacred. Yeah. Yes, And when I think about that being sacred, and then when I think about sacred spaces, (laughs) there's a reverence that you enter into a sacred space with. Right. And the scorn of white supremacy is that you feel entitled to other people's Mm -hmm. bodies. (laughs) That's exactly right. Right. And so... I don't think, I think it's beautiful that you brought that point up and, and from your perspective, because I think it begins to help people who are deemed white 
um, see it in a different way. But hair is sacred, and you shouldn't be touching it without consent anyway. Right. Um, Right. We've heard lots of similar instances Mm -hmm. with black women and white people want to touch white people. What on earth is possessing you to touch someone else's hair? Right. Like that just... Well, it was, and it's, it's like, it's I, exoticized. I, I like to be touched, right? I, it's, 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 that's the problem. It's exoticized. It's like, it's, it's exoticized. It's, it's put to a different standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the issue. That's where it becomes racist. That's where it becomes, <laughs> because it's like the, the, this difference is because you're still putting whiteness as the standard. Right. I think what it comes back to is mammy culture. Mm. I think that's what it comes back to. I think that white women have learned somehow or another, even now in 2020, that it's acceptable to one, go to black women with all of their feelings and all of their pain and expect to be held and expect to have this sort of, you know, confidential vault. And then of course, like you're saying, they come in with also, I own your body. <laughs> and while that may come across as quote unquote more gentle, because it's a, oh, can I touch your hair? It's like, it's a very intimate way of connecting with somebody. To touch somebody's hair is intimate. And so to assume that you have the right to be that intimate with somebody, I think comes from this lineage of mammy culture, of white women being used to having their hands held by black women through centuries and that has got to fucking stop it's gotta stop and this relates back to what we were talking about earlier about the politics of respectability so like i'm also thinking about you know people's perspectives changing of my former partner when she did decide to change her hair and white people responding, oh, I used to, I liked your hair the way it used to be or just giving her all their opinions. Nobody fucking asked you. Exactly. (laughs) But then also coming up against this trope of the angry black woman when she's simply raising her opinion in like a staff meeting and then, you know, we have to spend two hours talking about the microaggressions that were, you know, thrown at her because of that. And I'm like... There's so much that's tied, again, to the soma, to the body, and how that is perceived, and what what we think, where we think as white people, where we think our power is, where we think we have permission, and where we really absolutely do not, and, and what that means in these tiny little ways that white supremacy is perpetuated over and over and over. And I think that's where white people are having so much trouble right now is admitting those little things. And so I offer my example just as a way to invite people into this conversation. Like, think about, think about it. What if you are white and you're listening to this, like how have you maybe participated in a similar way to the story that I just described? Like, how have you maybe, like, where has that appeared in your life? And you don't have to, like, self-flagellate about it, but, like, own up, you know? Own up. Hey, thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Aaron Law. We hope you stick around for part two. It's going to be even more fun. See you on the flip side, everybody. Peace out.